but I was a heavy drinker. Right, that was uh, part of the culture. That was part of the culture. It's all an egotistical thing. The more you could drink, the more you were warned to by your friends. Might see the big yeah. man takes a drink. You had to keep that up. Yes, you he's could, a good guy. He takes you, a good pocket. You could. Yeah, I had took an enormous amount of drink, and people would fall about me, right. and they'd say, "He still drinks." See him. Yeah. See, see the stuff. Yeah, the real man. At the last stages of my drinking, I wasn't the one who did this, but you were forced into the image that you had created yeah. for yourself. First of all, my background as a strength coach, I was a powerlifting champion. I've got a couple of world records for powerlifting and I've been a strength coach internationally for the last 50 plus years. I started lifting weights in 1958, so it'll be 66 years at the turn of the new year. Welcome guys to Crime Time Inc. Bobby Preston, who we've spoke to before on our Talking Walking Football podcast. Hi Bobby, how are you? Good, thanks Simon. Good. How are I'm, you? I'm good, thank you very much. Delighted to be here this morning at your beautiful home. And your special guest that's with us today, I see you brought your minder along. Yes. Mr John Mullen. My bodyguard, yep. How are Hi. you John? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Welcome to Crime Time Inc. Okay. Are you a listener? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that sounded a bit uh, spontaneous there, John. That's good. Tentative. John, we're going to put a label on it this morning, PTSD. Tell us a wee bit about your background, John, and why we're here and what we're going to talk about. Well, my background is I've been counselling for many years, both with alcoholics and drug addicts. Right. I've been in AA since 1984. I managed to stay sober all through that period. My That's Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. My counselling was a, always a one-to-one basis. That's the way that I operated in it, rather than go to a meeting and get involved in meetings with it. Okay. I did lots of one-to-ones and was reasonably successful with that because I put a programme together, which I still use today occasionally. Okay. So a background in dealing with addiction from personal experience. What they call it these days is lived experience, isn't it? Well, personal experience of the alcohol, but not the drugs. Right. Okay, so you moved on to drugs. Counselling as well? I moved on to drug counselling. Okay, how did that come about, John? It was through through the art world of all sorts of places because I found very friendly with an artist, Peter Housen, and we found the people around him with a couple of them who were heroin addicts, and that drew me into the whole difficulty of that, and you'd be surprised at how many artists have got bad habits. So that drew me into that. And we used Castle Craig which is a home just outside Edinburgh, where right. you can go in and get some help. It wasn't that good a home, actually, in my opinion. I had problems with it because they take, just the way I personally see things, Yes, they take male and female and put them under the one roof, and okay. I think that's a, the stupidest idea in the world Okay, with people in recovery right? because you get dependency. Okay. It's open for abuse. The gender roles start to well, kick people, in. Well, some yeah. people say to me, that's just your mind. No, it's no. 
I'm yeah. telling you, it's no. I always said if you put 25 lawyers, male and female, together, for a couple of weeks you'd get nonsense. And they're supposed to be the intelligent side here. I don't think male and female in recovery should be under the same roof. Okay. We've maybe touched on another podcast here, a totally different podcast <laughs> okay. altogether, John. Okay. Tell me about you and Bobby then. How do you two come to be cohorts here? Because it's quite a, quite a formidable double act sitting well, there. Ten years, see a, sitting ten years ago, I went down to volunteer at Billwood. It was the charity that Bob ran. Okay. And I was down there for a wee while. Once that closed down, we kind of moved away in different directions. I went back to work at a wee electrical company. Uh-huh. And then got back in touch with Bob and came here and spoke to him about a few things, and he says, why don't you come and we'll train you properly and right. show you how to do things properly. Okay, we're talking uh, about physical training. Physical training. Okay. That was life-changing. If somebody had said to me, we changed the way I think what Bobby does, I'd have went, not one, but it did. It's life-changing. Let's come back to that then, John. Bobby, John mentioned Bullwood there. Tell us a wee bit about Bullwood then. We hate to mention things and not tell our audience what we're talking about. Well, we set up a woodworking charity. Bullwood is a charity over on the south side of Glasgow. Joe Martin is the founder of it, and I helped to raise the finance and put it all together with Joe. It's a woodworking charity where they do wood turning and carving and all sorts of things. And it's for retired people or people with poor health to go and recuperate, give them something to do, occupational therapy, which was very effective. In fact, it's still effective now. Joe's moved to Townhead, and that's where he operates a charity now. But I haven't been involved in it since the last maybe six years, seven years, because I've been busy doing other things. But it was well established before I had parted from it. In fact, you were one of the directors of it at one time, Simon. As a trustee, yeah. A trustee, right. yes, of course. The thing about Bullwood, Bobby, and it's very appropriate to what we're going to talk about today, is the effects of, of trauma and the effects of some people's occupations. Policemen in particular here at Crime Time Inc. we've talked about before. Yes. That, that Bullwood was a therapy. It was therapeutic for people. It was mainly men at the time that, that were attracted to it. Uh, from all backgrounds, who were coming with common purpose to make things, to be part of a community, to be part of the process, because it, it ended up that the wood uh, came through, had to be dried, it had to be stored, it had to be cut, and ended up supplying wood to other charities all over Glasgow and beyond, far right. beyond. The Caber for the New York Games and for the Scotland Day in New York and all that stuff. So the implications of it were far and wide. But it was really alongside Men's Sheds, alongside all the other charities out there that are trying to provide therapy, mainly for men and, and what we're talking about, who might be suffering in later life from things that we didn't even identify back then. Yeah, I didn't realise that until more recently. But I've been involved in the recovery process from PTSD for this last half century. So... We decided to develop that a bit further. But as you know, I train people. First of all, my background is a strength coach. I was a powerlifting champion. I've got a couple of world records for powerlifting. And I've been a strength coach internationally for the last 50 plus years. I started lifting weights in 1958. So it'll be 66 years at the turn of the new year. 
but I've been training various people from the police force and ex-military people who had various trauma issues in their life. I've been doing it as a matter of form. After Lockerbie, for example, I had some of the serious crime squad up here and trained them in the cue ball chain, mainly the flagship in Glasgow. Donald Black and Alan Beard and various others came there. We didn't realise it at the time, but weight training, strength training, in fact, was great therapy and a great mental diversion from the traumatic experiences and allowed people to overcome them far more quickly than just being settled or having counselling sessions because they gave priority to what they were doing, developing strength and bringing their body back into condition again. These people were all wise enough to know that blood circulation is everything to the human body. So in order to re-stabilise your mindset, improving your circulation factor and cardiovascular capability is an essential process. But John and I have decided to put these things together now, and I've been working with John on various people for this last five years, including John. John's been training, he's been powerlifting for five years now, and his strength is up considerably. In fact, he trains various different cycles, some bodybuilding, some strength training, some strongman training. John will be 75 in February, so he started when he was 70. So you're never too old to kick into this. So, John, this is where you spoke about with Bobby. The therapy you're talking about is five years ago you came uh, with Bobby on this programme. Is that what you would call it? Yeah, I come down as a friend, actually. Right, so you're the one. He's been telling me about this friend. I thought it was an imaginary friend all this time. But he challenged me to go to the gym and start working with him. And I was in the new gyms like I used to have a membership with the Hilton and Bells Hill and stuff right. like that. I had never did anything like this before when I started with him. Okay. When I left here, I was crippled. Yeah. <laughs> I know the feeling. So... Winding back from that then, tell us before that, John, you've been sober, congratulations for that, since 1984. Where did the problems come from before that, John, if you don't mind me asking, if you want to share that with us? I was in construction. Right. And being an uh, an electrician at trading, we worked in the oil business. Okay. uh, From, I first went offshore in 1973, which was early days. Okay. But it's a very macho culture. Yeah. And if you're a big drinker, you have to stand up to that. Going back to 1973, were there females on the rigs? Were there, no. So it was almost exclusively a male domain, much like the police was back then. Police women and the police in those days were a token, really. Well, there was no woman on the rigs at all at that time. They came later. It was also pioneering because what you found out quite quickly at 73 was that nobody actually knew what they were doing. The Americans who were experts in drilling were used to 50 to 75 feet of water the Mexican Gulf, and here they came to the North Sea, and it was 600 feet. And they also came to the movement of water, fast where it had been a sea, and also the structures. The structures with thousands of tons against it being a couple of hundred tons. So it was pioneering from my point of view of observing it, because everything was different every day. Okay. And the people that were making the decisions didn't they really know what decisions they were making were whether it's going to work or no. Yes. They were really in the track for what we now assume is, is right. commonplace. That's commonplace. Commonplace. They, 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 they put it all together. 
And we all learned our, our trade and our experience from that background. So that, that was my background in the oil industry. So where did that lead us to with drink problems? Well, I, I was a heavy drinker. Right. That was and part of the culture. That was part of the culture. It's all an egotistical thing. The more you could drink, the more you were warned to by your friends. You might see the big okay. man takes a drink. You had to keep that up. Yes. You He's could, a good guy. He takes you, a good bucket. You could yeah. I had took an enormous amount of drink, and people would fall about me, right? right. And they'd say, he still drinks, he am. See, see the stuff. Yeah, the real man. At the last stages of my drinking, I wasn't wanting to do this, but you were forced into the image that you had created yeah. for yourself. Yeah. And I was expected to drink large vodkas and a bottle of pills with every drink, you know, and that's the way that I... And that's a the bottle way of pills? That's interesting. What was the bottle of pills? The bottle of pills lager. It was, it was oh, right. I thought it was tablets. It was a strong lager with a, yes. with a large vodka. Was this on the rigs? No, no. We didn't no. drink on the rigs at all. Okay. When we came off, that's when we put our party hats on, right. if you like. So it was binging. You were oblivious for a while your first okay. week as you came home. So I'm picking your brains here, John, because you're an expert in this field, obviously, with your yep. experience and lived experience. When does that party animal become problematic? Fear for me. Mm-hmm. Every alcoholic's different. It okay. was fear for me. Uh, every addict's different. Uh, well, there's a big difference in it about, about how you deal with it or what you do next. Okay. And... Uh, I ended up getting into AA because I was frightened. Well, I had huge anxiety attacks. Right. I couldn't tell him because my ego, it's not wrong with me. Yeah. And everybody looked towards me as being nothing wrong with me. Colleagues of mine couldn't believe, you've won an AA? Don't believe you. I can't believe that that's you. But there was a hidden side which I kept a front for many years right. on my drinking habits. Bobby, that's interesting, that culture, keeping it hidden. Yeah, that's very much a West. I think of it as a West of Scotland thing, and as a police thing, you can understand why you don't want it to affect your the confidence that other people have in you on the street, you're where right. you're backing each yeah, other you're up, right, you rely yeah. on each other all the time, or on a bigger scale, your career. Mm. If you're thought of as weak because there's some weakness there or some mental problem and capacity, so it's all very much a macho thing. Bobby, ex forces background as well. Does that ring true right across? Yeah, that's a fallacy because people should... I heard you in a previous podcast with a couple of retired senior cops Mm -hmm. and the statement you made was, it's okay not to be okay. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's the case. If you're not okay, I think you should throw your hands up and declare and do something about it and return to the state okay again. I think that's what he was meaning, Bobby, was that it's okay to say... I'm not okay. That's what that meant to me. An admission was it's okay to... not to be okay. Yeah. You don't need to hide it. You don't what? need to pretend. You don't need to put on that front. It's okay to say, wait a minute, I'm not enjoying this. I can't cope with this. I'm having problems here. So what you meant, Bobby? Yeah, it? what can I do to restabilize my state of mind? Yes. And it's a fairly simple process. And I use physical exercise as well as, I mean, I use quantum physics as well. But I won't go into the details of that here because it would take us all day and all night. Well, thank God for that. Yeah, well, I'm sure you'd be pleased. That's another podcast that we do, the Quantum Physics Podcast. (laughs) However, the realisation that I've been doing this for half a century, it came to light 
few years back when I became aware of it. I've done it on a one-to-one basis all the time. But the thing is, John and I together can do this now on a multiple basis. We can handle two or three people at the same time. And to introduce them to a process whereby they get back with a stable mindset and get back to recovery, fitness and health, it's a big boost. Mental health as well as physical health. Mental health and physical health, yeah. So can I just make sure that we're on the same page here? What we're saying, what you guys are saying together is that this problem that exists, whether we label it PTSD, trauma, whatever it is, that can lead to addiction, it can lead to all sorts of outbursts of violence and different behaviours that are unacceptable in society. People not coping, really, is what we're talking about. Because of things that they've experienced, because of addictions that are generally the result of what they've experienced in their lives. Yes. Rather than the likes of the police who now outsource this, that policemen can go and get counselling. They can go and get some interventions where they can talk to someone, probably on a one-to-one basis, maybe in some group counselling. I'm not sure if that goes on. But rather than just that recourse, what you guys are saying is that you've got another thing here that is proven tried and tested over, what, 40 years are we talking about here? 50 years. Yes. That can intervene just as effectively in every front, physically, mentally, can reform that person and give them a fresh start. More effectively. Counselling is only part of the answer to this. Diversion into something else that requires maximum focus on their mental state and their physical performance supersedes the trauma, takes the anxiety away, and restabilizes their concern, focus, and direction. That word that you used there, diversion, yes. is uh, so powerful and very, very topical. Yes. Because it's what we're experimenting with, not me, but it's part of therapy that we're dealing with now for heroin addicts and other drug addicts here in Glasgow. Yes. We're, in Scotland, we've got the highest drug deaths in Europe. Yes. Diversion is a big, big part of what we're doing to divert people away from the lifestyles that they're, they're stuck in to divert people away from the communities that have caused the problem, the relationships that are causing the, th- the problems in their lives Correct. that have put them in the wrong direction. Yes. So you're talking here about a diversion in their lives that gives them a new focus, that gives them a yes. different focus. And it's far more powerful than whatever drugs or alcohol they were consuming previously. Okay. It supersedes all of that. Well, but you mentioned some policemen there, guys that I'm aware of. Yes. Tell us a wee bit about the history of that then, how that came about. Because I know you worked in the prison as well. Yes, I worked in the Berlini prison in the special unit with uh, multiple (laughs) convicted murderers. Right. Because these guys were mentally unstable to various degrees. You can tell by their conviction ratios and what the court cases exposed by witnesses. And the reason they got convicted so... I was a, I was chosen to go in there and restabilize the, these people mentally, which was quite interesting at the time and quite good when fun. When was this, Bobby? 85, 86. Okay. Like, and was it an official program? Were we trying something? Was it an experiment that was well, going it was, on? It was Sacro that asked me to go in and see what I could do to restabilize them mentally. So I did, and I did that for about a year. And then business and other sports commitments took over. So I had to stop that and divert the processes to other people. Uh-huh. But also, the serious crime squad used to come and train at Bella Houston Sports Centre when I was there. They thoroughly enjoyed it. 
And again, we didn't realise the mental benefit they got from it back then, but their superiors did, and since then, they have done. Because some years after Bella Houston, Donald Black, who was formerly Serious Crime Squad, brought people after the Lockerbie disaster to me when I was working with the cue ball chain. And I trained them in the flagship at Annie's Land in the gym there. This is nearly 90s then, just after Lockerbie. Well, late 80s, early 90s, yes, yes. So, and that was the very therapeutic for them and we stabilised them far more quickly than they would have done had they only gone to therapy sessions. But since then, I've continued to do it with individuals. Now we realise our intention, John and I, is to do it with the ex-military or current military, some of whom we're connected with presently, people that are working here and all over the world for 4G, S and various other. In fact, we have a boy from Hereford who wants to come along, Mike Simpson, the doctor up in Fife, wants to send the boy along to us to work on the systems, develop his own methodology along with the systems, gain the benefit of it, and assist us to expand the project, which we're happy to do, because a hundred grand thrown in this direction will save the NHS two or three million a year ongoing and increasing year after year as a result of the benefits of using our system. Let me rewind to Berlini. I'm fascinated by the Berlini because, as you right. know, I was a, a policeman at that time. Yes. Probably helped put some of these guys in there. Yes. Where they should have been. What is SACRO, for starters? You said it was it was a project that SACRO uh, asked you. Scottish Criminal Reform Association. Okay. Yeah. Is that still on the thing, on the go? Yes, it's still on the go. Yeah. That's where long-term prisoners who've had very serious crime convictions, SACRO take them out for the odd weekend or the odd day to get them reintroduce them to the public again okay. before they get released, and they get released on certain licence parole. So part of the system to get them released back into the public or back into society, the SACRO take care of all of that. Okay. So you mentioned the special unit. Yes. What was the special unit then at Berlin? Because people wouldn't remember that. It was a unit that was, de- well, you can look up the internet. It's a unit that was designed to isolate the serious mass murderers or multiple murder conviction people. So it's the most serious criminals. If they have mental health issues, if they're criminally insane, for example, they would be in Carstairs. So it's not quite Carstairs. It's people who are sane for all intents and purposes. They're maybe psychopathic or or they've committed heinous crimes, put it that way. That's for sure, yeah. Yeah. And the thought is that they would do so again. when They're maybe doing a life sentence then in Berlin. All of them, yes. Any names, Bobby? Joe Elliott, yeah. who were also involved in his, his conviction, but he was one of I don't remember all the names, but this is all on record. Anyone can check okay. this. It was yeah. George Sharkey from Sacro that put me in there, and John McCallum, who was a sergeant at the barn, Springburn at the time, had got George, who was ex-Hereford also, to contact me and ask me if I would go in there and train them yeah. in order to reduce the venomous fire that was in their minds. And, of course, the people that looked after them used to appreciate when I would go in and allow them to train because they remained fairly tired and stable for the next 24, 48 <laughs> hours till I went back in again. And everybody won. It was a win-win situation. But it was also part of their reformation to go back into society. Uh-huh. 
I'm sure they benefited out of it. If I'd have stayed there, we would have developed this process on a multiple basis many years ago, 45 years ago. But now, I've only done it systematically with individuals since then. But now we're going to expand it. We'll start with a group of two or three, then we'll go to a dozen, and then we'll... So what facilities did you have? Let's use the special unit as an example then. John, do you think you can become addicted to violence? Do you think you can become addicted to anything? Does these guys... I think it depends how, who, who's training and who's laying the laws down. Right. I think anybody can be addicted to, to something if you're getting the wrong impression and wrong attitude put to you. Like in Bobby's training, when he's a training, it's like a horse wearing blinkers. You wear blinkers and you do it, and you don't see the results till after you've of done course, it. Of course. And that's when the results come. From an addictive point of view, addiction is a way of life. It's a form of life. On the street, it's, you've got to be an addict to be one of them. Yeah. The problem you've got is if you decide that you want outside that and live a normal life, you become a target mm -hmm. because your colleagues who are still using don't like that. Yeah. And they would try and force you into it. I heard it described once, John. See what you think of this. It's like a, a bucket of crabs. Yeah. And apparently, I've never tried this. Maybe we'll do it on camera someday and see if it's true. But if you put half a dozen crabs in a bucket, they'll all try and get out. Mm -hmm. And if one looks as though it's going to succeed, <laughs> if it's nearly halfway up or past halfway up and it's making some progress, you know what happens? The other ones pull it back in again. And they try to get out. And they keep doing that to each other so well, that they'll be able to Same in AA from my, my background because once you become sober, you become a target. Uh -huh. Who do, you, do, do you think you're better than us? A big shot. You know, yeah. also you're smarter than us. Hey, you don't think. To the extent so that... where the boxing came in then? Well, you learned to box. Well, the, the <laughs> reaction on a construction site, once I get sober, I decided to go back into construction, and that was a mistake. Right. Because you're back I, in an environment. Right, because yeah. I, I, I walked into an environment where people went, big and Disney drink, everybody ignored you yeah. and stayed away from you. And then some people would taunt you. And that's where the boxing come in. Because yeah. if somebody taunted me enough, I would lash out at it. And yeah. then it was, Biggie doesn't drink, and he's a nutcase. <laughs> and I resented that. I wasn't a nutcase at all. I just want to left alone. Yes. Can I stay at work and do my job and no bother about anybody? You weren't going to be allowed to do that. That culture's interesting. I mean, I experienced it just this Friday past. Uh, Chris and, and a friend of ours were at a football do. In Drumchapel, not far from here, Drumchapel United. And the guy that took us over, Davy, doesn't drink. He hasn't drank since he was about 18 or something. And his explanation to me was, like Bobby, that he didn't like it. He didn't like the taste. Really? He didn't like it. And it just, he's never done anything for him. Mm. And he's not had a drink for, what, 50 years now or whatever it is. He's not counting. But as soon as I tell anybody that, and I told the guy that on Friday, no, Davy doesn't take a drink. The assumption is that he's an ex, he's an alcoholic. That's the assumption. Yep. Oh, is there a problem? You know, and you start having wee tiptoes round about him because it must be something from his past that he doesn't take a drink. Right. It's the old Scottish thing, isn't it? Same. You can't be trusted if you don't take a drink. Well, you can't be. <laughs> we we had, a, we had a, a situation in Southampton many years ago where the senior guy with ESO that we were working under, we were told the day we went in, he doesn't drink. Right. And we went, oh, what trouble here. We're not going to get to the pub at lunchtime because of this idiot, because he doesn't drink. 
I'll bet he's a Christian. Well, that kind of stuff comes out. It you know. reminds me of a story. Sorry, guys. It reminds me of a story in Ireland. We know what the Scottish yeah. islands are like. For anybody that doesn't live in Scotland, yes. uh, you'll need to come here and find out. Or read my book, even. <laughs> what, but, the 10%? Uh, the 10%. The very fell. But I went over with a football team, and I was identified as we came off the ferry uh, as the policeman. I, don't know, I didn't know that at the time, because right. I'd had a few beers at the time. But I was put in a certain taxi that was told to pick up the policeman and make sure that he was all right Yeah. as okay. they brought me down to Bomoa. So I always remember the taxi driver's name was Blue. I don't know his real name. I just know that he was Blue. And I don't remember him being Blue, but that was his nickname for whatever reason. On the way down, he quizzed me all the way down, subtly, you know. And when we got to the Bowmore Hotel, which is where we were staying, it was mobbed, pre-football tournament, everybody's in, all the teams are in. And as we walked in, the place went, shh, this, not quite a hush, but the volume certainly went down as everybody turned around and went, CID, CID, boas, boas, for the mainland, right? From the mainland, an unknown quantity walking into the bar. So we go up to the bar, and by this time I've twigged, and Blue turns to me and says, uh, will you be having a dram? And I said, it's okay, I'll get it. Two fingers, barman, for the four of us. And he turns around to the guy next to him blatantly and says, it's all right, he takes a fucking dram. <laughs> so I was all right. I was a piss artist. You were Everything's cool. Uh, you can bring your cars out with no MOT. You, you can, can do whatever you want now. now. He's one of us. This guy's not going to listen take the to piss right out of him. Tell somebody else about that. You know, that's... Bobby, I need to take us back to the special unit. Forgive me because it's uh, it's fascinating for me. And I was being a wee bit flippant there about people in for this and mental problems. Yes. The truth of the matter is people think about crime very often. The public think about crime in compartments. Unfortunately, a lot of police officers do that too. Yes. But there's no compartments. These guys are in there for heinous crimes, but they're victims themselves of the environments that they've come through, that they're responding to. Yes. And it's maybe culminated in a, a shooting or a stabbing or whatever where they've gone overboard, but it's maybe gang culture, it's maybe drug warfare, it's maybe just an instant in a pub. Glasgow was famous for fractions over the years for our gang warfare over the years. Yes. So they've got in there because of something they've done that has been over the score. They've pulled a blade or they've done they've committed a murder generally in the special unit would be murder, is that right? Right, Simon, to give you an example of people in the special unit, I remember one day I was having lunch. The chap who prepared lunch, I don't remember his name, but he, he was a butcher and he was telling me all about the different cuts of beef and everything. And he made lunch, it was stew, carrots, potatoes, something else. It was quite nice. I'm sitting eating it. And I had said to him, what is it you're in here for? Because you seem to be fairly stable. And he laughed. He said, I, it was just a murder. He said, but uh, a funny thing about it, he said, I, I murdered an old guy, he told me the bloke's name, was an elderly gentleman he had murdered. And he cut the body up in order to put it in different bags and destroy it in different ways. He lived over in the East End, it was Denison he was in, he was in a flat, and the flat had an open grate. He said, when I cut the rest of the body sections up, I took his bladder out and I threw it in the fire. He said, and it put the fire out, he said, I had neglected to drain the bladder before I threw it in the fire. It was really funny. So, And this was during me eating lunch <laughs> with the chap <laughs> in the <laughs> special unit in Berlin. So does that give you an inkling of their mindset? Yeah, just ordinary guys. 
<laughs> you could say that, yes. Yeah. So your methodology then, you walk in the door, and obviously a part of it is threat assessment straight away. Is, is this a safe environment? Did you have other people with you? Were you on your own? No, just me and Mullen. It okay. was a safe environment for me. Okay. Did they have a gym? No. I set the gym up for them. I took the weights in. I contributed, donated an Olympic weight cut, dumbbells, benches, everything. Okay. And did they perform one-on-one -on -one with you or as a group? Well, I, I trained them really? individually and in pairs or the, the most with three at one time. Okay. So how many people were in the special unit, Bobby? I think there were only nine at the time. I right. think it held 12 or 14. Yeah, I think you're right. There were only nine at that time in there. Let me ask you a question about the system then that we're talking about here. Yes. This is going back over 40 years. Yes. Two or three, is that optimum? To work together? Probably a three-man group. See, a three-man group gives you perfect timing. If you, if you do a certain exercise, then the next man does a certain exercise, then the next man does it, you've had sufficient rest to go back in and do a second set of the same exercise. So a three-man timing group is perfect and for the weight safest, training. And the safest. because you've got two to load and catch for every person that's lifting. Okay. And just a wee aside from that is I'm thinking about with PTSD. We spoke about it on our podcast about PTSD. Yes. Myself and Tom Wood thought that we had come across this part of it, that being on your own, dealing with something is a hundred times harder than dealing with it in, with a companion, with a friend, a wife, a partner, whatever it might be. Would that be part of the theme and team thing as well? That certainly is a case, yes. Although once you become acquainted with what they're doing, it tends to get a bit competitive, which is a good thing because it further deepens their attention and focus on what they're doing. There's a great deal more to weight training than just pulling and pushing. They have to gain a basic knowledge of, more than basic knowledge, of physicality, anatomy, physiology, different muscle groups, for example, how they operate, how the heart and lungs operate, all the things that function in the body processes. People forget the human body is just a vehicle. That's just a thing we use to get around from A to B and do bits and pieces, that's all. So it should be treated like any other vehicle. It has to be looked after properly. And people that are destabilized somewhat mentally or have any form of mental health issues tend not to look after themselves as exactly as they would do had they a clear mindset. That's all. Okay. That's interesting, John. You've been with Bobby five years on this, this road, yeah. yes, this system. Would you attest to everything Bobby's yes. just said there? Exactly. I'd back that up exactly what he says. You're learning about yourself. I'm you're learning, learning about mentally and physically. Well, you're learning about yourself as well. Well, you've been trained and been dictated to you about what he's telling you and asking you to do. But you're learning about yourself. Coaching, I would call it, not dictated. Well, as I say, it was life-changing for me. Yeah. I would never have expected and would probably have derided anybody that offered it to me before, except him. Yes. I respected him, so I went along with him to start with. Yeah. And then I got a, a complete mind change about it. It's about confidence. Uh -huh. Once you regain your confidence, like with PTSD, you become a different person entirely. Maybe the word is control. Because what you're doing with people, Bobby, is giving them control again. We can all control what we do physically, exercise. Well, what, I think once you get the rewards yeah. of Bobby's training scheme, I would argue that the guys that achieve anything in it will be more than happy 
to come back to us and help the next group yeah. and play a part in that. You mentioned five years. That's a discipline then over that five-year period. Yeah. And Bobby mentioned a year, spending a year with people to mm-hmm. get them on. So that three-man team, Bobby, part of that, what I'm getting at here is that commitment to that programme. A three-man team, you're much more likely to turn up rather than let the other two down. Exactly. Then if you're on your own, you can say, I'll just have a lie in the day or I'll do this or do that. It's that commitment to it that's important, Bobby. Well, yeah, but I've never had that. I've trained people individually for over half a century, and I've never had anyone say, I don't think I'll bother. Is that because of your selection process as well, though? Yeah. Because I know that you wouldn't work with just any No, we profile everybody, and if it's not going to work with somebody, there's no point in me starting it or pulling them a direction they don't want to go in. You have to work with people who want to get better. That's interesting, then, because we've got somebody who's not well. Yes. Whether we label it PTSD or it doesn't matter what we label it. Okay. They're, they're suffering, okay? Yes. They're not functioning to the best. They know they've got the fog. They know that the that they're not right. Yes. And they're looking for help. That Sometimes that, that means mood swings as well. Yes. So tell us about the profiling then. What are you looking for from someone that would make them eligible to get the success that John's had? And I know many other people you've worked with, Bobby, over the years. Yes. We'll talk about a couple of them in a minute or two. What did they all have in common? What did they bring to the table that made it crucial to get anything out of this programme? Well, it's crucial for everybody. Everybody will get something out of the programme, some more than others. But if I profile someone and I go into their genetics and their previous history, I ask them questions about the previous generation, their mum and dad, for example. Okay. And I ask them questions about their grandparents on both sides, maternal and paternal. And once I find all that out, I make a judgment on that. Because you can find out a lot about people by finding out what their genes are like historically. If you go back a couple of generations, just that's all you need to go back. And their previous lifestyle, if they've been involved in any form of sport when they were younger, then it's a big advantage to bring them back to that. You're going to profile people before they would come on to your programme. It's not going to be successful for just any Tom, Dick or Harry. Yes. So what are you looking for from them? What, what would the ideal candidate look like? I'm looking for full commitment from them. Right. And we can make up for poor genetics. Right. Nowadays, with the systems of weight training that are available, we can make up for poor genetics. You don't need to have, your grandfather doesn't need to have been an Olympic champion. So attitude is everything here? No question. It's a mental state. Okay. So you're profiling, you're looking for the right attitude. Yes. What else in that profile would make this person uh, eligible? to do this. Enthusiasm, capability, background support from their own family or their partner or their kids or whatever. All of these things come into play here. And once I know that I can organise everything, including their background and family and partner, to support them while they're doing this, then I make a decision. I may have to defer people for three months or six months. In fact, I've done that previously. And it's the third time that they've returned to me. I've, I've decided, okay. You're ready. He's been back twice here. This is the third time. This boy definitely wants to get better. Sure. Did you bring the attitude? Did you yeah, bring well, the I, commitment? I believe I did. I think the important thing is when you interview somebody to come on a course like this, 
it has to be made abundantly clear to them from a discipline point of view. It's no up for discussion. Yeah. Don't come in and try and change anything. And don't tell us how good you are at something or other. We will tell you how. So once they understand that, they then get an easy access to what we are going to do. Because in AA, I found that the worst people to deal with were people who had money. See, trying to get a guy that's got a few quid. The story of AA, he didn't want to do daily pages. I'm a, yeah. I'm a businessman. You realise how much money I've got? Do you realise how much money I've got? And that was catastrophe for them because they hadn't a clue. They thought because they had money and drove a Range Rover. And the process big would be different. Probably. Yeah, they were probably the hardest people in the world to get sober yeah. because of that. So what we're saying here is that regardless of your background, regardless of what Bobby's saying there about your history and your genetics and what, regardless of all of that, regardless of your build, your weight, your height, your physical attributes as you come to the table, age. regardless of age, yeah, sex, background of any kind, none of that comes into it. No. If you come into this with the right attitude, with a commitment, prepared to do what's required and go along with the system as it is, yes. then you will be successful. Yes, you supersede everything else. You yeah. will be successful. There's no question about being successful. I yeah. want to go into more detail. I mean, this is uh, life-changing. This will be life-changing right. for so yeah. many people. Exactly yes. right. And I think we're due to bring to go into that in a wee bit more detail, and we'll do that next time. Okay. What I'd like to finish on just now is a couple of examples, Bobby. Yeah. Over the years, over the long period of time, tell us a wee bit about your strength training when you were a boy then, how you got involved in this world. Well, I wasn't very well when I was 10 years of age. Mother took me to the doctors, took advice for the doctors, and it was a doctor called Mary E. Devine in Allison Street in Glasgow in the south side. She recommended my mum take me to see a strong man who was in Bridgeton at the time, a Mr. Rice. Is this in the 50s, Bobby? This is post-war. Yes, yeah. yep. this was 57, 1957. And my mum got the address, Mordant Street in Bridgeton, a Mr. Bob Rice. Mum took me over there. There was a wee bunch of sticks. I had been seriously ill all summer, the summer previously. I had mumps, measles, chickenpox, scarlet fever. And then I had meningitis in the winter. It was just the worst year in a kid's life. Yeah. And I was a shadow, just a shadow, set of bones. She took me to see Mr. Rice, who took to me, and I started taking his training advice. She took me three times a week over there, and that's where I met other people that we've known. In what was this years. place probably? Is that a gym? It's a gym. He had was a wee shop. <laughs> And the, and the trains used to run underground in the shop, and it was the old steam trains. And when the trains went by underground, the smoke and steam would come up through the floorboards of the shop. You couldn't see anybody, and we were all breathing in smoke from burning coal and everything, lifting these iron weights. That were, it was horrendous, but great fun at the time. It was great fun for a wee boy. Yes. And being allowed to participate in this was a great honour for me. And I found out very soon after I started training there, Bob Rice had had the world record deadlift at eight stone. He lifted 400 pounds at eight stone body weight. And his record will live forever now because they changed the body weights right. into kilos and all that. So nobody lifts in the eight stone class anymore. Right. So nobody will break Bob's record. 
anymore officially. Was he a man? Neat stone man? He was a neat stone man, yeah, but he he was ex-military. What's that, flyweight or something? Yeah, which phantom weight, isn't it? I think so, yeah. So so you're a boy, what age were you? I was 11 then by the time I started training. I was quite old when I started. Okay. But now I, I train my grandkids now. And the youngest grandkid who has a current world record deadlift, as you know, yeah. being in all the media, he set the world record deadlift when he was a year and nine months old. And he started lifting weights before he could walk. How's he doing anyway? I've not seen him for a while. Fantastic. He's doing yeah. great. Still training? In fact, yeah, if you punch up Preston Power on the internet, you'll see his current training regime, <laughs> apart from also his previous training regimes. You'll see John Bench pressing and Preston Power. So it's uh, the only person that's not interested in power, Simon McLean. <laughs> but I'll need to get him, get him filmed lifting in the gym, and we'll get him put on the pressing power. Uh, what a story that would be! That would be yes, <laughs> one of the miracle <laughs> regimes. Yeah. Miracles now, yeah. yes. But yes. Wait, I know we're joking there a wee bit, a wee bit. But tell me about the boy that wanted to get in the forces and he couldn't get in. That you guys told me about before. Tell us a wee bit about that. Robbie up in Fife. Mike yeah. Simpson, Dr. Simpson introduced us to Robbie. We went up and did an exhibition and a talk last year in the summer for kids in the Equestrian Society up in Fife uh-huh. at the stables and all that. But what was the name of the place? It was up in Ely, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Anyway, we went up and gave him a strongman exhibition and gave him a lecture and things. I took up a couple of the swords, the Wallace swords and a couple of Tardis. And the kids all get their photographs taken with the swords. Mike Simpson told us that Robbie had tried twice to get into the Royal Engineers. Uh-huh. His family had been a military family since the 17th century, all traceable. And he couldn't get into the engineers. And he was a very clever boy. He was only 19 or 20 at the time. He had his university degree in engineering. He's got a master's. I mean, a lovely boy, clever boy, a and big boy. And the background of his family. Yes. He couldn't get in. Yes, on physical he, grounds. His BMI was too high. Yeah, he was too fat. Right. And not very strong. Okay. So he spent a day in our company and we set his mind in the right direction. In fact, he's on. You can see him deadlifting. I think he pulled 33 reps with a couple of hundred pounds in the deadlift, all in one set. It's filmed. It's on Preston Power. You see him and the kids are all cheering the morning. Robbie. Robbie. I don't know what his surname is. Anyway, since then, he's continued training using our methodology and focus. And he's now in the Royal Engineers. Very proud. Very proud. Yeah. Fascinating. So it's life changing. It is for him, yes. Aye. Guys, it's very inspiring. Yeah. I don't know how you're not more excited because I'm getting excited just listening to this. Well, I need to wait and see. We'll see if any of the retired senior police officers know people who could benefit from this, or even themselves even. If they would get in touch with you and yeah. ask to find out more, then you can put them in touch with me. Of course. They'll find out much more and we'll roll the process out. Listen, the next time, very soon, we'll go into a wee bit more detail here about the system that you're talking about, how it works, what commitment's going to be required, what equipment, what people are going to need to do with their lifestyle around about that, and how they're going to get that support, get their families to buy into it. Because the one thing about PTSD that I do know is that support network around about someone who's suffering mentally, who's having problems, is very, very important. It's not necessary, it's essential. Essential. Yeah. Well, you get you get the support as soon as the guy's wife or his parents 
or his teenage children find out what he's doing, they will get right behind him because they will see this as a way out of this nutcases. They would they'll see the problems that manifest more than he does. More than he does. And they've been dodging them. Yes. Like bullets for years and years hiding from it. And him getting help like that, they will be a great support side, which he will need. That's brilliant, John. That's coming from the addiction side that you know that for a fact. Guys, for now, we'll leave it. And uh, I can't wait to delve into this a bit more. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thank you.